Hello, salams, and welcome. You're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast with your hosts, me, Yasmin Lee, and Zara Chowdhury. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication dedicated to travel, culture, and history from a Muslim perspective. In this series, we'll be talking to writers, artists, historians, and a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. In this episode, I speak to Muazzam Mir. Born in Nairobi, Kenya, he completed his university education in the UK, graduating in commercial and corporate law. He holds a deep interest in classical Islamic knowledge as well as African history. If you follow us on Instagram, you'll be familiar with him already through his four-day Insta story covering the Lamu Maulid Festival. He begins by telling us about the differences he perceived in the way Islam is practiced in Britain and in Kenya. The um, Islam that I've I grew up around was a very um, African, very Swahili Islam, and I, I, it's, interestingly enough, I found a very, a very, a very, I found it very alien when I was, you know, encountering um, Islamic culture and um, Islamic heritage in the UK from from uh, a South Asian background. And oh, okay. I, um, yeah, it was very, it was very strange, and I mean, a lot of people, I realized a lot of people didn't know about Islam in Africa when I moved to the UK and they were very um, sort of I, I, I would meet a lot of people with raised eyebrows when I when I told them that I was Asian but I from Kenya and actually my um, I have ancestry that goes back a couple of generations from East Africa right so I mean I'm very very far removed from and um, I mean it's not just me it's there's we have a massive um, East African Asian population um, in, in East Africa as well as places like Mauritius and you know South Africa so um, and I realized as well that there there is a lot of prejudice against um, sort of black Muslims in the UK and yeah. I, I felt that perhaps the um, I mean, I I studied. I mean, I've I wouldn't say I've studied my religion extensively, but alongside my formal, you know, secular education, I have studied my religion in in Kenya, and I mean, I've also studied in the UK, and I thought that it might be a good idea to attend the famous, the the very famous and um, historic Lamu Maulid, and sort of document that for. Uh, sacred footsteps and the feedback that I got was overwhelmingly positive like I was I heard feedback from you know people from the East African diaspora that were from here and from you know as far as the US or Denmark and they were like you know thank you so much for doing this it's time that people sort of um, learned more about Swahili culture right. and you know um, the her- Islamic heritage of, of East Africa. Right no we we had the same we had so many messages from people saying they had no idea that people had these traditions, they were so deep-rooted, and that Islam was practiced in that way. And I think people were just grateful to be able to see a different side, not different side, but a, Islam practiced in a different way, maybe. No, certainly. And um, then when I found out about, um, you know, Mustafa Briggs's uh, tour beyond Bilal, mm-hmm. and I realized, actually, perhaps there's there's a lot of um, need for, um, you know, spreading awareness about um, uh, sub-Saharan African Islam and, um, you know, Islam from, from this region, just because of, um, you know, it helps... Um, alleviate and, uh, you know, destroy prejudices within the Muslim community, um, you know, generally. Right. And it also, yeah, it also, um, it, it teaches, um, it teaches, you know, the wider ummah that, um, you know, Islam is a very, it's, it's a very dynamic religion. And I mean, even within one continent, it can be so dynamic and so different and that we need to, you know, embrace our diversity. Yeah, definitely. Mentioning Mustafa, if people who re- listen regularly, we had an episode with Mustafa Briggs, and he spoke about the roots of Islam in West Africa. And hopefully by the end of this episode, I think people will see how just how different and how how diverse um, the history of Islam in Africa is. And Africa's huge. So when we say Africa, like we're talking about a huge place with so many different types of people, so many different cultures within that one continent. I know, definitely, definitely. And I mean, Islam has, um, I- Islam has, a presence in Africa since the inception of Islam. They, there was um, a Muslim community living in East Africa before there was a Muslim community living in, um, you know, Medina. And we, we know this from the Sira and we know about um, the earliest masjid in the whole of Africa was um, 
in what is today Eritrea, the um, Masjid of the Sahaba, which was from the first century, right? And it was built by yeah, it was built by um, the Sahaba who had um, settled in 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 this region. And I mean, Eritrea isn't even that far away from the region that we're going to be discussing today because we're talk- we're going to be talking about the Swahili coast generally, which is um, you could say from uh, roughly from around Somalia down to perhaps Mozambique. And the reason why I discuss- decided to do the Swahili, Swahili coast is pr- probably because I'm from from the region where the Swahili coast passes through Kenya, and also because I mean we would probably need several episodes just to talk about the whole of East Africa, just because of yeah. how diverse and how you know storied the hi- Islamic history and you know how rich the the culture is just in one region. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I mean, going back to what you just said, that's a really powerful statement. Like Islam was in East Africa before it was in Medina. You don't think of it like that. No, you don't. You you certainly don't. Could you maybe explain in more detail for people who aren't familiar with um, how the Muslims first went there? So um, in the Syria of the Prophet, there was um, the period of the um, persecution in in Mecca. And what the the Prophet initially instructed some of his Sahaba who could travel, and um, he instructed them to sail to Abyssinia, which is... um, the present day, you could say, greater Ethiopia, Somalia, and Eritrea, like parts of it. And he said that there was a Christian king there, and that the Christian king would um, is a very fair king, and he'd allow them to practice their religion. And um, among the Sahaba were even, you know, great Sahab, Sahaba like um, Uthman ibn Affan, the, the third caliph of Islam. And when they when they arrived to, um, you know, the king of Abyssinia. Um, there was a delegation from from Mecca that was sent to um, you know try and bring them back. And when um, the, the Sahaba is initially told told the uh, the king of Abyssinia about you know um, what Islam is all about, and when he saw when he saw the comparisons between Islam and Christianity, and he saw the similarities, he allowed them to stay and to practice their religion freely. And um, it was actually when Muslims were being persecuted in Mecca, the Muslims living in Abyssinia were practicing their religion freely, and they were living in freedom under under the rule of um the east african king and i mean islam has uh, i mean east africa has always had such a um, strong uh, you know bond with with um you know the the life of the prophet sallallahu we know that he used to wear um uh, you know rings from from east africa and we know of stories for example um of the um abyssinians who were who had become muslim in um the city of the prophet sallallahu and how they were you know dancing and praising him in the masjid and how um omar ibn al-khattab sort of um, almost tried to reprimand them, and the Prophet tried to, you know, he he stopped them. And he said, you know, let them let them express their, you know, gratitude and in, in the way that they understand most. And he allowed them to dance in their masjid, right. in his masjid. And yeah, and I, I I think it's it's just so beautiful to see how that that culture was. Um, I mean, Islam wasn't culturally predatory in that in that regard. Like he didn't try and impose um, a Hijazi Arabian sort of culture on the Abyssinians. Yeah, right. He allowed them to, yeah. To practice their their culture freely and uh, their expression of Islam freely, and we still see that um, here in East Africa, and you know, in particular, like the the Lamu Maulid, which we'll be discussing soon. So, um, yeah, so essentially, Islam has had a very strong, you know, uh, connection with with East Africa. One thing about East Africa that um, a lot of historians sort of emphasize is that um, one of the reasons that they weren't um, from earlier periods, very large institutions of um, Islamic learning in East Africa, as compared to you know the the institutions of Timbuktu and and as such in West Africa, is that um, it was so easy to um, access um, knowledge in places like Mecca and Medina and, and in other places of Islamic knowledge oh, okay. um, in Arabia, like yeah, mm. like Hyderabad. Is it was essentially just sailing across the Chan, um, you know, the the Gulf of Aden, yeah, the right. Red Sea, and. Uh, this, this this sort of this idea that um, there's this divide between the Arab world and Africa is I mean it goes back to about the 16th century when you know Europe was sort of you know dividing up the world and but I mean uh, his, some historians say, say that look it was essentially almost the same as just you know crossing a, a very big lake or you know crossing mm. over a mountain and I mean you even see it in um, places like Turim you see um, 
a lot of like because there's there's been a lot of cross cultural you know pollination and that's why I mean I've whenever I I'll give you a very interesting example I have friend who um, studied in Tarim in Hyderabad um, which is in Yemen a valley in Yemen for a while and he loved it there but when he saw Lamu he t- I mean he didn't he's never been to Lamu but he's seen photos and he said I have a deep yearning to study in Lamu and to come to Lamu and he said it's just it's essentially just the same thing but you, you don't really think about it that way you think you know there's this big divide between yeah. the Arab world and uh, you know Africa I think that's a very it's a very post-colonial thing as well because for these so, divisions were not obviously they were not there initially and it was the British who came and kind of literally got their ruler out on a map um, and then and we kind lines. of tend to think yeah. in those terms even now certainly and I mean um we, it's it, you know, it's really interesting the way um, we understand Islamic law and uh, you know Islamic heritage and just unfortunately we've we've sort of given um, African scholars and you know African um, you know men of men of Islam so we've sort of sidelined them a mm. bit. Um, when I when I was in the UK, I noticed majority of the Muslims I encountered were of um, a South Asian um, extraction, and they, um, I mean, the region of you know India, Pakistan, and you know Bangladesh, ha- are predominantly of the Hanafi school of law. And I mean, I, I I found it very strange that a lot of them didn't know about um, you know Islam in East Africa when one of the greatest um, Hanafi scholars, um, um, Uthman ibn Ali Zaylai from um, the Horn of Africa, from what is present-day Somalia. He wrote one of the most important texts in the Hanafi school. Um, he called it Dabin al-Haqaiq. And he wrote this in the 13th century um, of the Common Era. And it's still considered to this day one of the most important texts of um, Islamic law. Mm. And you know, when we think of even traders and, you know, travelers, like we think of names like, you know, Ibn Battuta or, or you know, names that are more central to, quote unquote, um, you know, the Arab world. I mean, we, we don't we don't think of names like uh, Saeed bin Mokadishu, um, who was uh, another Somali um, uh, great traveler who actually was such an erudite scholar that he used to host classes when he would travel to um, the Hejaz, to, to Mecca and Medina. Like people would come and attend his classes there, even though there was, you know, it, it was essentially the, 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 the center of Islam. Right. And yeah. he, yeah. He traveled as far as China and India, and it's said that in India he actually met Ibn Battuta, and um, there are some historians who have the view that he was actually the one who, who taught Ibn Battuta things about China that Ibn Battuta oh, didn't no even way. know himself. Yeah, yeah, and then Ibn Battuta, like Peter Jackson and other historians, and then Ibn Battuta essentially added that to his to his chronicles. So it's it's very interesting that um, a lot of this is is you know uh, neglected, and unfortunately, we I mean it's unfortunate that it is, and we need to revive and you know um, bring to bring to knowledge about you know the, the African um, legacy of Islam. Definitely, and I think because you mentioned <laughs> travelers and traders, and their story is kind of integral to Islam in East Africa, right? Because the way Islam kind of spread in East Africa is very diff- different to North Africa and West Africa in the sense that there were no armies that invaded. It was more like waves of immigration through trading and things like that, right? Essentially. So, yeah, I, I believe that the Islamic heritage of East Africa is essentially a maritime heritage. So mm. what what we had, and it's tied very um, intimately with the Baalawi um, tariqa of um, of Hyderabad of Yemen, because there um, this this tariqa's main sort of the profession that the people of this tariqa expo- exposed was um, sc- uh, you know uh, scholarism and as well as trade, and so they traded um, and they spread you know Islam hand in hand along the western indian ocean and they even went as far as places like borneo or you know um what is today singapore and um you know they spread islam there and so we had um initially what ha- what happened was they were um along the swahili coast now um which is the, the region of you know kenya tanzania you know zanzibar the comoros islands we had um the establishment of city states so you think of like how the emirates the emirates are you have these independent city states that go back um, well over a thousand years, yeah. and um, th- these these were um, just really famous ports of of you know trade and of um, of commerce, but um, they were predominantly Muslim, and Islam hadn't yet pushed in into the interior of East Africa as of yet. But um, these were very prosperous nations because, because another important thing about to know to understand about East Africa is there's this sort of notion that you know East Africa, um, well, not even just East Africa, but Africa in general, that you know Africa is was this. 
um, you know, sort of barbaric backward continent, and it didn't really progress until you know um, European discovery and you know the um, you know colonialism, which is which is not which is not the case. Um, you had um, people like Ibn Battuta and even um, Portuguese um, explorers, and, and they would come to um, the city states of Mombasa and Malindi here in, in in what is today known as Kenya, and they would they would remark about, oh, you know, th- these are actually some of the cleanest, some of the most prosperous trading cities we've ever seen in our lives. Mm. And I mean, even even Batuta would would remark about how um you know how well practicing the the um, Muslims are of the uh, the region, and you know how um their trade links would go as far as places like Venice to um you know china and just all over the world yeah, right. and then uh, unfortunately because of the um the slave trade that was quite predominant um especially out of zanzibar um islam didn't really penetrate into the hinterlands of um of the swahili coast because you know because of the um islamic law that you know you can't you can't sort of um enslave a muslim uh when that started dying down what happened was you had this emergence of dawa now coming into the you know hinted the um hinterlands of um you know of um <clears throat> of east africa where um sort of non arab swahili um and when i say swahili and the swahili people are very interesting um because they're um essentially an an afro arabic um peoples mm-hmm. and the swahili language that they speak is one of the most you know you know one of the most celebrated languages in in all of africa and it's it's a very much um a mixture of very many different languages just because of the the trade that 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 the, you know the swahili were engaged yeah. in so it's it's a mixture of many different you know bantu dialects they also have um, were, sorry i was just gonna say they also have persian <clears throat> persian roots right right so they have persian roots. so for example um the the word for um uh ship in in swahili is jahazi which comes from uh the persian jahaz and I mean, there's so many. Yeah, there's so many other words. Like, for example, um, a book in in Arabic is kitab, but in Swahili it's kitabu. And so you have many different languages, like you know, Indian languages and um, you know, local African dialects, and it created this really beautiful, really rich language. Right. And it had a very strong oral tradition. One one thing about East Africa that's um, different from West Africa. Osman Kani notes this very well in his book um, Beyond Timbuktu. Is that um, unfortunately because of the climate and the humidity in East Africa, it was very difficult for um, texts to, to be used and, um, you know, Islamic um, or, you know, to any be kind preserved, of text. To be preserved, yeah, right. To be preserved because of the humidity and because of, the you know, the, the, the poor conditions. And so Islam had to, was a, it was a very much an oral tradition mm. of Islam, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing because, I mean, even in the early, early centuries and the early generations of Islam, um, it, was always an, it was always an oral tradition. And, um, but it, it's a shame, though, because in like within history books, well, Western history books, I guess, that's almost used as a way of kind of discrediting Swahili history in the sense that people people are like, oh, well, it was oral. We, we don't really know much about that era when actually, no, there are a lot of oral traditions that have survived. It's just they're not taken as seriously. There are a lot of oral traditions that have survived. So, for example, um, Western 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 sources might tell you that the city of Mombasa, um, the, the, they, they only know about it from about the 16th century because they have no t- um, textual mm-hmm. evidence that, um, that, go, that go back any further. But, you know, like f- locally, we know that the city dates from around the nine, from around 900 years um, of the common, of the common era, which is much, much, much older. And then there's also this other notion that um, sort of civilizations in in East Africa or just generally in Africa were not sort of indigenously African. They had to have some sort of foreign influence. So, for for example, a European influence or an Arab influence. And I mean, the same is said about, they say the same about East Africa as well, which is, I mean, it's simply not true. So, for example, um, the Mandarin uh, Masjid of um, of Mombasa, which is, which was built around the um, I'd say perhaps almost the third century of um, Hijra, um, it has some in its minarets. There are arches that are not found anywhere else in the world. They're indigenous to this part of the world, which shows that it was very much an African 
um, style of building, mm-hmm. you know, buildings. And um, even when we look at other other places, like for example, um, the fabled city of um, the fabled lost city of of Gedi, and I mean, uh, there's not much information about the city. It's it's very it's you could say it's the I mean it's it's very interesting that a lot of people know about Machu Picchu, but a lot of people wouldn't know about um, the Gedi ruins. Mm. And essentially, what the Gedi ruins is is um, Further inland from the coast you, um, of Kenya, you have this abandoned city, which is about 45 acres within a forest. And um, it was it is said to have been built around the 10th century of the Common Era. And then just mysteriously, all the inhabitants just vanished around the 17th century. Mm. And nobody knows who they were or, you know, where they came from or why they left. And it, it's actually quite spooky, mm, like, yeah, uh, you know, if you think about it. Yeah. It's very interesting, and um, you know, there've been theories that oh, you know, it must have been a Turkish, um, a, a, a pe- Turkish people who came here because they built a very sophisticated. Um, they had very sophisticated, tr- um, you know, um, city planning, and in fact, it's very interesting because all the way back in the thirteen um, hundreds, the um, houses in Gedi had indoor plumbing. Like wow. they had a very sophisticated, yeah, and this is something that wasn't introduced in Europe for a very, very long time. But I mean, the only thing that, and you have found, they found artifacts in, in, the, in Gedi that are from all over the world. So, I mean, they have things from Venice, from Spain, um, you know, just all sorts of items from China, so what, which shows that. Yeah, these, I was going to say, what, so what would that indicate that they were sailors, potentially? I mean, and even that. Is, is adds more to the mystery because unlike the other cities of um of, of the Swahili coast, it's not even found on the coast. It's found oh, of just yeah. I, you said it was inland. Yeah, it's it's further inland. And the funny thing is, um, geologists believe that the um the, the coastline has actually moved in line more uh, through the centuries, meaning it was even further inland, mm. and um which just is, is very astounding because um uh, there's some theories that suggest that the, that um the region was um, at that time very unsafe to travel around. So there was, um, I mean, even to travel up Creek, it would, especially with, with goods and with wares that you, you've traded, there was always um, a risk of being attract, attacked by local tribes and stuff. So it's, it's very astounding, astounding and just very surprising where this, you know, the, the, this very, um, very developed and, you know, very sophisticated city came from. And um, so things that indicate that this was a, traditional African civilization is that, for instance, some of the tombs that are um, located... So, for, for example, the only indication as well that it's, it, it was Islamic was um, two very large mosques. In fact, even bigger than some of the ones along the Swahili coast, like along the like towns like Mombasa or Malindi. There's there two very large mosques and um, some tombs. And the tombs have... Um, these very beautiful pillars that are designed on top of the tombs and it's not found anywhere else in in the world not even on alongside the swahili coast which had a lot of you know attractions of you know arab sailors or right. um, indians or or persians and then within one of the other one of the masajid they have this um a carving of a spearhead which was something indicate which was sort of a symbol of many of the pastoral communities within the region and it's it's just it's it's really astounding to a lot of historians because they're just baffled as to why they would have this um yeah you know the symbol and unfortunately without without any written evidence or without any indication as to why the entire city just disappeared um there's there's not much any information about about you know these people but we do know that they were very wealthy um, in fact a lot of the stone houses that are preserved um i mean that are still intact um have most of them had safes safes built within the houses for you know um, the storage of gold and you know other other um precious um you know um heirlooms right. that, that the families there lived lived with that's that's and, um, so yeah, sophisticated to have safes it, yeah they had safes they had indoor plumbing and um you know they had large palaces with courtyards and it was just in the middle of nowhere it was in the middle of the um arabuko sokoko forest in kilifi and now when you go there, mm. it's like, it's so eerie. Um, I mean, I grew up with ghost stories about, about um, Gedi Island uh, ruins. I mean, there's stories about, you know, the it's it's a place that's haunted and it's possessed. There are jinn there and, you know, you shouldn't, oh, okay. you shouldn't go at night because you, yeah. Yeah, a lot of fables, a lot of fables then um, drew up because, you know, there's not even a, any oral stories about from the, from the people around the region about Gedi. Like, it's as if it just 
popped out of nowhere. It, it sounds very I, Indiana Jones, <laughs> the way you're describing it's very, it. Very, <laughs> it's very, very Indiana Jones. You convinced and, I mean, me, I'm though, just, I have to, like, visit this place now. It sounds amazing. And, I mean, I just, to me, it's it's a bit sad that there's not a lot of, um, I mean, there, there's theories and there's excavations that are going on, but there's not a lot of information. And I just feel like we need to preserve um, the history of Islam in Africa. And, that, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I, I'm, I'm taking up initiatives like this. Yeah, and also, I feel uh, like, if things like that were better preserved, it would kind of help eradicate this myth that Islam is a recent religion there. And it's because it's almost classed as though it's not a native religion, quote unquote. But people don't realize that, no, it's been there since the ninth, eighth, ninth century. Like, how far back do you have to go to be considered a native religion? No, no certainly. I mean, the... Um the academic giant um, Ali Mazrui, who we'll talk about his family in a bit, he um, he he coined it best when he said the tropical the the, the um, triple heritage of Africa was Islam, um, native cultures, and Christianity. And the reason why people don't even consider Christianity is that they tend to when when they think about Christianity, they always tend to think about the Western Orthodox Church vis a vis the Eastern Orthodox Church, but nobody ever pays attention to the Ethiopian Church. Which yes, is just as old as yeah, which is just as old as as any of these, and so yeah, I think I think it's it's very important to you know um, just to learn history and to um, you know just to explore just to explore these things Definitely. and to um, just you know to visit these to visit these places. But you know, and, um, so I was going to say, so you you were mentioning how like Islam initially Muslims were mainly on the on the Swahili coast, and then slowly Islam kind of moved towards the mainland but i wanted to talk more about that process like when exactly that happened and how it happened so there's um within within east africa when i talk about east africa i mean the swahili coast what happened was um you didn't have traders coming in down from north africa like you had in the case of west africa and one of the reasons for that is because um you had this really strong buffer of what we mentioned earlier on the um you know the the ethiopian sort of abyssinian empire and um so you you and what what essentially happened was um the need for trade didn't really need to penetrate too much inland because um, unlike West Africa, which had a lot of, you know, abundance of gold and other, you know, precious items further inland, East Africa, like I said, was was a very strong maritime, um, uh, uh, you know, region. But what happened was then um, with the advent of, you know, colonialism, when um, uh, there was further exploration inland, um, it, it opened up the the avenues for Dawa and for um, one, one, of, one of a really... Uh, Something some people might not really know much about this, but um, the uh, the Lunatic Express, which was considered the most expensive railway at that time, which was built primarily by um, South Asian workers, um, which started on the port of Mombasa and it finished um, in Port Florence, which actually it did even Port Florence is 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 not the final destination. It went all the way to Uganda. It was built mainly by a lot of South Asians. Um, they were they were contractors who had come. Who I, I wouldn't say necessarily slaves, but um, they worked under very mm. harsh conditions. It said it was said that um, for every four tracks, uh, four miles of track laid, you'd have one death. Right, and there, there and, were stories about lions too, right, eating workers, and I don't know how true right, that so is. There, Right, so there's there's actually a, a movie about this, and unfortunately, the film didn't do very well at the box office. It was called um, "The Ghost in the Darkness," and it was about the there's this region in in what's what's known today as Kenya called Savo, which is which means a place of slaughter, and essentially you had um, these Savo lions, which are known particularly for their aggression and they would um, they would attack railway workers there, and I mean there were all these stories that that you know, popped up because a lot of the workers were Muslim uh, coming from uh, what was then, the you know, the British India. And, you know, there were a lot of uh, stories that popped up that these oh, these are not actually lions. These are jinn and, um, you know, all sorts of crazy mm. stories. And there's 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 one um, particularly famous worker whose name was um, Bagh Ali Shah. And um, he was either um, of Punjabi or Afghan um, heritage. And um, it said that he was... Um, a wali of God, and that he could he could actually speak to the lions, and you know, to tell them not to harm any of the workers. And he was known for his abnormal strength. And in fact, there was um, one famous incident when he was carrying um, a basket of um, uh, building material, and as he was walking, it levitated above his head. And in fact, a lot of people saw this incident, and then they took Islam. Wow. And um, as yeah, as as he he was known for his piety as well. And as 
as the you know the railway progressed, he suddenly died uh, along the railway, uh, along the railway line, and they they initially wanted to move his um to to ca- transport his body back to India or to bury him in Mombasa, but when they tried to lift him he was proving to be too heavy so they ended up actually burying him along the side of the railway and his um he now has there's a tomb there called bagalisha masjid um which is literally i mean there's a photograph of this uh, if you could i mean it's it's available on my instagram i think i've shown you this yeah you did show me of, yeah yeah and you literally have this massive train and it's just passing along a track in the middle of nowhere and then right alongside it you have this like um a mazar of of somebody and there are people who still go there uh, to this day um you know for 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 ziyars and stuff and so slowly by slowly you had um uh, through the, the efforts of Indian workers, uh, mosques popping up within the the hit within the inner you know lands of um, of East Africa, and I mean I can I can think of one very very famous incident of um, when when the, the railway reached Nairobi, which was which was not really a city in those days because um, Nairobi, which is the capital city of Kenya, um, is only about a hundred years old, and I'm talking about the this is probably around the late 1800s, uh, the um, Muslim community, when they reached there, um, they decided to to crowdfund to build a masjid. And they ended up raising so much money that they they built a mosque, which became then the largest masjid, uh, the largest building in the whole of Nairobi. Mm. And um, it was, um, because it was, it was, it was predominantly Asian, um, you know, heritage or, or, you know, extraction, the, the masjid, um, they, they took inspiration from the Mughal empire. And so the masjid, you could say it's, 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 it's very Mughal looking in architecture. It's oh, called, okay. it's the Nairobi Jamia Masjid. Yeah. And it's got these, you know, bulbous domes and, you know, yeah. these, these chatris and these sort of flute minarets. And it, it's very beautiful mosque to look at. It's still, it's still, um, I mean, you, it's still a beautiful sight to, to see. And in fact, a lot of my, um, a lot of my elders told me that even way back in the sixties before, uh, you know, all these large sky, skyscrapers sort of um, uh, blocked it off. It was actually a beautiful tourist attraction. People would go see the mosque, then they'd go to the Nairobi National Park. And um, the the imam of that masjid was, um, many people consider him to be a wali as well of um, of uh, Afghan descent called um, uh, Sayyid Abdullah Shah. And he um, was very instrumental in bringing um, a lot of people into Islam uh, along, you know, from the neighboring tribes that lived ar- around the area. And it's, it's very beautiful because it, it turned out to be a very cosmopolitan mosque. Because what you have here is a very Indian architecture mosque in the heart of Africa. And it was, um, they, were having, they would have speeches in Swahili, in Somali, in Arabic and in Punjabi. Oh, no and way. um yeah yeah it was it was very beautiful it was very beautiful because they wanted to to pull together the muslim community living there and um another very famous incident happened with um a, a close friend of uh, sayyid abdullah shah his name was um imtiaz ali and he was actually from delhi and he was um considered a very rich person and he was very well educated and so when he came to um when he came to this region in search of trade he brokered um f- for a lot of you, you know um a lot of deals between um, various ethnic, ethnic groups, and um, because of his his um, you know eloquence, he made close ties with um, the British as well. And because of his um, you know his wealth and his piety and his you know good conduct, he his just through conduct he brought so many people into Islam from um, neighboring tribes that may have never heard about Islam before. And a really funny incident that happened between him and um, Sayyid Abdullah Shah was that he um, one day was late for. Um, uh, to pray in Jama, and you know he complained and said, you know why did you start early b- um, before me? And uh, Sayyid Abdullah Shah, who was the, you know the Imam at that time, sort of in, in, a, in a joking way told told him, you know you're a rich man, why don't you build your own mosque? And um, Imtiaz Ali said, you know I think I might just do that. <laughs> and then he went and built a masjid, like not even like a spitting distance from from the uh, Jamia Masjid of um, Sayyid Abdullah Shah. And there was, that became Imtiaz Ali Masjid. And so just through these efforts, more and more people came into Islam. And then what happened with the Imtiaz Ali Masjid was um, it when, when Kenya, Kenya came into independence, it was sort of, um, it was demolished. And then it was, it was um, the, the Muslim community um, sort of, bought it back and they built a tomb for um, Imti Azali and they, they rebuilt the masjid. And um, this was only back in 2016, actually. And Habib Ali Jeffrey came and he said a very interesting thing um, uh, at the masjid. He said, um, 
when the awliya joke, they end up building mosques. So uh-huh. what happens when they're serious? Which is which is such a profound statement. So that was really the contribution of um, the, the the Asian community. But I mean, there's also a very strong contribution of um, the, uh, the sort of the Swahili community that were at the, initially practicing a very ex- a very exclusivist Islam where they didn't really, um, you know, sort of. Prosthetized to, um, to 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 other African communities w- alongside the East African coast, you had um, people like um, Habib Habib Omar um, bin Sumait, and he was from the Comoros Islands. And something very interesting about him is, like I said earlier, um, people have this notion that sort of the Islam of Africa was it was sort of less you know educated or you know less sophisticated. When he was born, he didn't see his father for the first years of his life. He was actually raised by his mother because his father was, although from the Comoros Islands, he was living in Istanbul at the time because he was um, the, the Sultan had called him all the way from the Comoros Islands to serve as a Qadi in in Istanbul because he said, "You're such a you know a knowledgeable man of Islam. We need you here." So he was actually, um, yeah. So that 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 again shows that um, you know the, the the African contribution to Islam is not just um, you know periphery or you and know, it's not it's not just like, within Africa either. It, it extended far know. beyond. No, it's not just within Africa. Like for example, the um, uh, in in Lamu, the um, there was um, a mufti of Oman called uh, Khalil Ibn Ahmed, and he studied in Lamu to become a mufti in Oman. And then he went back to Oman to become a mufti there, and um, so one thing um, Habib Omar bin Sumait did was he he um, tried to sort of um, proselytize to um, other African communities, and he had a lot of um, students that I'm going to talk about in in in, in a short while. But I want to talk a bit more about him because I just wanted to say I'm just so amazed by um, Omar bin Sumait because not only was he very traditional in you know his um, respect for the awliya and you know his beliefs in miracles and and um, all these sort of traditional notions of Islam but he was very progressive with the time which which then at this which then again puts uh, you know puts down this notion that sort of Africa was sort of backwards and it took a while to develop because when um, when he was Alive, he was in correspondence with um, the top reformists of um, the Muslim world at the time, M- men like um, um, Muhammad Abdu and you know Rashid Ridda, and he was you know in correspondence with them on how to improve you know uh, Muslim societies in in Africa. And in fact, in, in Z- when he was living in Zanzibar, the British wanted uh, wanted to introduce paved roads and lighting, and a lot of the people there were against it because they thought that this is um, just you know it's just a European concept and it's uh, you know antithetical to Islam. And which and going against this popular notion that Muslim scholars are backwards, he actually advocated for it. And in fact, one of the things he advocated for was vaccinations, which a lot of Muslims were sort of against. And he he made this grand show of like you know walking down to you know the local uh, what was hospital at that time to get to get vaccinated himself. Okay. And um, yeah, but at the same time, he was he was still very you know. Um, traditional in his understanding of Islam right. he you know be- believed in having um spiritual sheikhs and but it's very interesting because it's like they were very um like socially aware it wasn't just they didn't kind of resign themselves to like quote unquote religious issues they were very socially aware and they wanted to make society a better place no no definitely the um they were very socially aware one of the greatest um, scholars of east africa um his um his name was uh, alamin ali mazrui and um he actually um he is so he you could say he was um probably the most profound scholar of east africa when it came to being socially aware whilst at the same time being traditional like he was very keen on traditional science studies he was from mombasa and he was he would lament at the state of you know the muslims uh, at the the early period of colonialism he was also very much in contact with um the 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 happenings in the quote-unquote you know center central parts of the muslim world like egypt or you know um uh, other places where all these things were, were developing and um he he actually started his own newspaper and he was out of pocket he uh, called al islah and another one was called sahifa where he where he talked about you know um, important issues like women's education and he went so far as you know he kick started his own school for women and you know um the need for secular education as well and the need for um you, you, yeah a lot of people know the name habib ahmed mashur haldad and how he's you know considered one of the greatest scholars and saints of the 20th century but a lot of people wouldn't tell you that he um 
dedicated a lot of his life to East Africa. He lived in Mombasa for six months of his life, and then six months in Jeddah, and then six months in Mombasa, and then six months in Jeddah. And he's, you know, he spoke fluent Swahili, and he propagated Islam to um, the conservative figure is over 30,000 people took the shahada from him, like personally. And after that, yeah, he, he, he stopped giving count. And he went into sort of tiny villages um, all over all over the the region, um, you know, giving you know giving da'wah, calling people to Islam, and uh, he he it said that his little house in Mombasa, he would sit outside the house um, with a cup of tea, and whenever he'd see like a non-Muslim pass by, he invite he'd invite them for a cup of tea, and it said that they wouldn't finish their tea before saying the shahada, and so that yeah that was the his his influence and the impact that he had on on uh, this. Part of um, the world for Islam, but a lot of people don't know about this, and a lot of people don't know about you know his his miracles. And it said that once when he was a young man, he was um, you know he was sailing down the coast of East Africa, and he heard um, some voices. And what he did was he he docked his boat and he went into a forest and there was um, a group of jinn and they were reciting the Ratib of Imam al which is a very um, famous um, uh, book of um, of dhikr. Mm-hmm. And they didn't allow him to you know to 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 pass along until he um, he gave them uh, ijazah to recite that. And another of, a very famous one of his um, miracles is that whenever he'd visit Medina, he wouldn't enter it before he'd see a vision of the Prophet Sallallahu to tell him that. You yeah you could come you could you can come into uh, you can come into Medina until one time when he reached the gates of Medina, the Prophet came to him in a vision and said you can come and go as much as you want you don't need my permission, and like it's his he his his name is Mashur and he's he's known all over the world, like he's so I I've, I know of a story in Canada about somebody who. Um, wanted to buy a house and when they entered the house they saw a photo of him in the house and without seeing the rest of the house they just said i'm buying this house <laughs> and it's 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 just so beautiful and the sad thing is not a lot of people know about his um you know his african her- legacy yeah. and just the beautiful way in which he called people to islam and it was just you know from the strength of his character he would enter into villages where people wouldn't even know um uh, you know know about um, islamic culture or islamic you'd have there was one there were some very famous incidents incidents of you know him entering a village and um in that village there were um, women who would who would dress bare-chested and when they'd see him i mean they had no concept of islamic haya but just by gazing at him they would lay down on the ground and you know and you know cover themselves up um by just by laying down on the ground and i mean look at the contrast that modern day dais have with that we know when they see somebody a sister without hijab they say you know why aren't you wearing the hijab yeah there, there's so much to learn about how you know da'wah was spread um in east africa and you know the beautiful way in which it was brought to brought to um africa and i mean i think the the, the one of the most beautiful ways i can think of certainly is um the lamu maulid which um i mean was a way to sort of integrate um the, you know the sort of the, the free slave um you know sort of lower echelons of society yeah. into you know the with the more upper class they were called the wangwana the um the the the, the higher um, echelons of islamic society what they would do is they would you know study islam within within doors and you know they wouldn't leave their expensive homes and stuff and what um um habib swale did was he came from the comoros islands um which is which is which are islands between you could say mozambique and madagascar and he came there and he saw a vision of a sheikh in um Sa'yun, which is in Yemen, and he saw a vision of the, the sheikh praying in on a piece of land there, and he ended up by getting the piece of land, and he never met the sheikh before. His name was um, Ali al-Habshi, but he um, is said to have had a very strong spiritual connection with him, what the Sufis would call um, Sohba Ruhiya, and he would, it's said that they would meet in visions, and every night they'd meet in visions, and essentially he gave him the permission to um, then start a maulid there, and to start a masjid there, and he built the masjid of Riyadh, the, the Riyadh masjid, mm. just as how it's built in in Sayyun, in Yemen, down to uh, even down to this inscription that's on the um, on the on the walls of the masjid, which it says, um, "These are the meadows, and you know these are the springs for the people who live here to drink from." And um, he then created a college there, which became um, he he taught Islam to basically everybody in the society, whether they were you know a freed slave or whether they were you know descendant of the prophets he didn't discriminate and then he created he, he what he found was among along the um 
the non-Muslim communities, they had these ritual dances. And what he did was he sifted through some of the ritual dances which he felt were un-Islamic, and he took on the ritual dances which he felt were, were could fit within line of the Sharia. And he then initiated this maulid, where uh, they would recite the maulid whilst people would, would would be doing this ritual dance. And you you'd see you saw some of this in if you've seen the episode that um it's it's on the highlights of um, yeah. Secret, so it's on our, it's on our Instagram highlights, so people can check it out. And also Riyadh Masjid and everything and other other information about the island, because I think a lot of people have not even heard of Lamu before. Yeah, a lot of people haven't even heard of Lamu. I mean, I but at the same time, a lot of people have, which is which is a good sign. I mean, I remember I was in um, Konya. I had gone to um, the ziyarah of um, um, Jalaluddin Rumi, and I um, I met a Turkish man there, and you know, I was having a conversation with him and a bunch of other people, and he was asking us, you know, where are you from? And somebody was, you know, smiled and said, I'm from Lebanon, and somebody else smiled and said, I'm from Jordan, and I just said, you know, I'm from Kenya, and I didn't expect much of an, um, a reaction, and he went, Oh wow, Subhanallah. I love Lamu. You know, it's it's the stronghold of the Muslims, and so th- Lamu is a hidden secret. Yeah. And so those people who know about Lamu really appreciate Lamu because it's so well preserved and it's not you know tainted very much by um, you know this influence or that influence. And I think we need to we need to preserve that. We need to maintain its Islamic heritage because I mean Kenya is is not an Islamic country. It's not a Muslim country, and unfortunately, what what you have is um, along. Along the East African coast, now you have this very ancient, very proud heritage of Islam, which is starting to get tainted by, um, you know, a lot of tourists come from foreign foreign countries, and um, with that, with them, they bring other, uh, they bring um, vices that are not, you know, familiar to the to the Muslim world and, uh, you know, to Islam, and it's it's trying to sort of, you know corrupt at um i mean this is things that i've observed i've I, I observed a lot of drunkenness unfortunately in lamu um because of um bars that had opened up because of a lot of um right. backpackers from from places like europe yeah. who would come to um you know and and um a lot of people because they're unfamiliar with this um they, they don't know how to handle it and so i mean um we we really need to reclaim the islamic heritage of these places before you know it's 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 lost forever right and I mean, there's also, I mean, a race to sort of preserve some of the manuscripts of, of Lamu, because as I said earlier on, um, it, it was very hard for, you know, books and, and things to be, you know, preserved in, in, in East Africa. But Lamu does have a manuscript collection and they're trying to digitize them before, you know, they, they mold out and stuff. Oh, that's really cool. And I mean, some... Yeah, something like this is happening in West Africa as well because of changing climates and also because of insecurity. There's this book called um, the Badass um, Historians of uh, Librarians rather of Timbuktu that I really recommend, and it's about how they're trying to race against time to preserve these, you know, very vital texts. in In the Riyadh Masjid um, Library, there's some texts that aren't found anywhere else in the Muslim world, which again shows that the Islam of um, East Africa is a very original Islam, and it's not that they were, you know, just getting texts from from here or there and you know learning about it they were they were scholars in yeah, their own they were right producing their own texts certainly certainly they were producing their own texts going back to your <clears throat> your lamu story I, I really hope people who haven't seen it will go and watch it now but i'll just explain in case people aren't familiar with it because the lamu molith festival takes place every year during rabi al-awwal to celebrate the birth of the prophet sallallahu and it lasts for four days oh, is no, that right so um, it lasts for three, three days. days. I yeah. When I arrived, they they were beginning to prepare for the festival, so I managed to get extra footage. Right. Yeah. Oh, so that's why ours was four days, I guess. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the things I really loved was how they also have other things going on, so like swimming competitions and you know what I mean, like other things happening to get young people excited about it. And I just think that is such a beautiful concept because, um, I mean, the only thing I could compare it to, you know how. It, growing up in England you, like you have Christmas and there's so much going on and it's such an exciting time for young children and then you have Eid and because this is not a Muslim country mm-hmm. it's harder to get that excitement going and I feel like that's really important and the fact that they've they've kind of done that there um, they've created all their own traditions and they've linked it to the Molid and I just think that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, I know, it's very intuitive and I mean, not only do they have swimming competitions, then they also have, you know, prize money, which is um, a very beautiful thing because, I mean, it's it's a very poor part of part of Kenya, not just part of the world and, you know, Kenya's not a very um, wealthy country. Um, Lamu is... Uh, 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 um, 
exceptionally poor and you have like a lot of very high price monies for um you know the highest you know the fastest swimmer and or you know the, the fastest dao and it's it's not even these competitions what i think are so beautiful about them is they they don't sort of um lead to wastage because um they, they have donkey races which which i mean lamu is an island of three thousand donkeys because everybody has <laughs> you know just transports around on donkeys and i mean because i, you were I they, there's even no cars or roads there's no cars or roads. Even their hospital service, like their ambulance service, is essentially a donkey with. Um, oh no way! Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a donkey. It's a donkey with like a um a, a push push car at the back. I like I saw a sick man being transported wow. to a hospital on yeah via donkey, and uh, so I mean they just have they have dow races. I mean the, the dow they have their dows anyways there for fishing and for transport and then swimming. Um, swimming is a skill that it's an island. Swimming is a skill that many people have, and then you have uh, you have the donkeys. So they're not they're not really wasting much when it comes to like you know um, oh i see what uh, you mean yeah yeah you know there's not they're a lot like of wasted, utilizing so what they already have they're, they're utilizing what they have they're, they're being in, um, you know intuitive they're not it's 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 um what's that word i'm looking for economical it's very very economical and it's very sustainable that's the one right. it's very sustainable and i think it's just a very beautiful initiative and it, it creates this you know the sweetness of um of islam uh, you know because people think oh you know i can't wait for the maulid festival because then um not only are we doing the maulid then you know all these beautiful dances and the, the sweet food and you know the flags there's also a chance for me to perhaps try and be the best swimmer and uh, that way you're looking forward to the maulid the, the whole year round and and that way you know it's it still it instills um, a love for the Prophet in your heart yeah. and I just think it's a very rather than a very dry sort of you know um, just you know bookish Islam where you just you know you you, you, you um, study or you just you yeah. know, have a very long Ramadan and then at the end of it you have Eid but you don't really celebrate Yeah, I just think it's, yeah, it's, it's a very beautiful thing you know I have to say so I've been told in every single episode I always say wow, I didn't know that, or, oh, that's so interesting. And I've really, really resisted the urge so far. But I genuinely do find it really interesting. And I feel like no, it's fascinating. a lot of the stories that you're telling, for a lot of people, they're not really accessible unless through a medium like this. You know, everybody knows, everybody knows um, Habib Omar bin Hafiz. And everybody knows that he's like a, a very great scholar within, um, you know, um, you know the Sufi tradition, and just generally, he's one of the most influential scholars. But a lot of people won't know that. I mean, um, about the the respect that he has for East African and you know African scholars in general, because a lot of people wouldn't venture out to places like um, East Africa for you know ziaras or for retreat. It's which is unfortunate, you because you know, uh, I mean, living in the West, I realized you had a lot of people going to places like Istanbul or to Fez yeah. or to you know um, Cairo. Which I mean, uh, um, granted, these are very beautiful places to visit. But I mean, now Alhamdulillah, I've I've realized there there are people traveling to places like Kaulak and to Medina Bay because of the um, initiatives that have been done by people like uh, Mustafa Briggs. So you're gonna yeah. have you, you you'll have people coming to um, East Africa as well now, inshallah, and you'll see how you know people like. Um, Ustad Muhammad Baid, even when he from you know East Africa, when he would travel to uh, quote unquote Arab world, they would you know respect him so much that they they let him speak first in front of you know great scholars like you know Habib Omar and um, how he was you know called the, the you know the Ghazali of Africa and you know you you you'll get to learn more about um, you know Islamic East Africa and at the same time you know you can have a, you can make a safari out of it as well you know I I just happened to catch some giraffes and some some gazelles on my way out of Nairobi so that was a bonus. One thing that I really like now that's happening in East Africa, because I said many people should be visiting and people from a Muslim background uh, coming to East Africa shouldn't be too worried about, um, you know, having access to mosques or halal food, because now, you know, with conjunction of the um, uh, Kenyan government, the um, you're having more um, promotion of halal tourism and more promotion of halal tourism in, you know, in hotels and with restaurants and a very specific organization that I can think of that started by a very entrepreneurial woman from Lamu called um, Halal safaris you should check their instagram page out they're you know very interesting yeah i'll link them in the show notes too definitely i think we'll have to have you back on for another episode because there are other things i would love to have spoken about like for example because you've t you've spoken about the fact that your heritage is indian also it would be nice to mm -hmm. talk about how like the swahili communities how the indian communities how they interact with each other and and also more about the history of slavery in the region too i think that's a really important topic so we'll have to get you back certainly on. yeah inshallah. inshallah but thank you so inshallah. much for talking to us thank you for
for listening. If you want to know more about any of the topics or people mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes for all of the links. Please let us know your thoughts on social media. On Twitter, you'll find us at sfootsteps. Footsteps.